Welcome to IT Visionaries, created by The Mission, your number one source for accelerated learning. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Ian sits down with Mike Fitzmorris, Chief Technology Officer at Skybow. Mike shares with us his thoughts on low-code development, citizen development, and what the future holds for these two trends. We hope you enjoy the episode. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce. The Lightning Platform is a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone is empowered to build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash buildapps. Welcome to another episode of IT Visionaries. We have a special guest on the other end of the line, not in studio, up in what I presume is a pretty uh, blustery Seattle, Washington. Mike, how's it going? You are absolutely right. It is a uh, blustery Seattle afternoon, but at the same time, it's that rare, rarest actually of creatures in the Pacific Northwest, a sunny day in December. Oh yeah, that's pretty good. Lots of wind. Yeah, lots of wind. That's, you know, it's uh, it, it's been raining here in the Bay, but we have a sunny episode coming for our listeners talking about low code, no code, and all things in between. Yeah, really excited to have you on. Um, you know, you're one of the one of the experts on on low code and no code. In fact, Skybo has a motto: "No code, no compromise," which we want to get into in this episode, and want to talk about what are the differences between that and citizen development, how it all kind of works together, what are workflow and business processes, platforms and strategies. So, let's get into it. Tell me a little bit about your role and responsibilities at Skybo. Well, I'm the chief technology officer, and that actually involves several things. Obviously, it means uh, setting strategy and helping to guide and direct a lot of the things we do, both in terms of how we handle things internally and and also how we uh, create and evolve our product line for customers and partners. So I help set the agenda. I mean, I'm not the only person that does that. We've got a clever team of clever people that do that, but I absolutely lead it. In addition to that, I'm sort of the chief explainer for the company. I spend a lot of time explaining to any of a number of different people what low-code, no-code development is, what citizen development is, what, what kinds of things that most applications out there do or fail to do or could do better and how we're different. But I have the luxury of not only talking about our products, but also talking about what we care about and what our products attempt to address. I'd rather sell you on an idea than sell you on a product because I actually think the ideas have legs and have merit no matter who is framing that message and and who is bringing it up. If you you don't talk to us, you should talk to somebody. And how did you get to Skybo? What was the path that kind of got you into technology and, and on the road to your role as CTO? Oh my, uh, we have to go back to the late 80s, I guess, maybe even earlier than that. Uh, I did a lot of marketing and policy research at a trade association in Washington, D.C., and I got so good at managing large amounts of data and putting together what the term citizen development didn't exist at the time, but I was so effective at building solutions at first for my own department and then for others. They eventually offered me the keys to the kingdom, and I became the IT director. 
a citizen developer essentially became a formal developer and, and actually a former a formal IT infrastructure person. Uh, so I have an early uh, success story in that particular regard. From then I went into consulting, first for a third-party organization and then for Microsoft itself. Then I got involved with uh, a project that would eventually become SharePoint Portal Server 2001. Worked on SharePoint for the first four releases. Then I jumped over to a workflow automation company called Nintex, which again, this operates within the Microsoft sphere. I was their subject matter expert on the topic of workflow of business productivity and citizen development and their chief evangelist. I did that for about 10 years. And earlier this year, I uh, got in touch or I, I became very acquainted with a clever group of people in Switzerland named Skybo. I've actually been watching what they're doing for some time. And I noticed that they solved a couple of fundamental problems that most everybody in low code, no code land either doesn't bother to tackle at all or keeps kicking down the road to handle later. And that's, well, for lack of a better term, citizen DevOps, or just being able to handle release management and packaging and deployment and rapid updates and, uh, and things along those lines. So what I loved about the people I work for now is that they thought of this stuff on day one. So what you mentioned Skybo's uh, motto of no code compromise, no compromise, the first compromise that most people typically make is they build, they have to build something in production. A friend of mine, Dan Holm, who runs marketing for SharePoint at Microsoft, once said, if you're developing in production, it's not that you don't have a development environment, it's that you don't have a production environment. And that's a big deal. It's, really, it's a bigger deal than most yeah, people. I mean, yeah, can you I mean, expand on that a little bit? Yeah, well, look, uh, if I have to develop in a production environment because I don't have a place to try something out myself, I have the potential to destabilize, well, everything. And just because I'm building something in the cloud, okay, uh, if I work in Office 365, for example, I, I know that there are people that listen to this podcast that don't live in a Microsoft universe, and, and I beg your indulgence, and I ask you to map Office 365 concepts to similar concepts that exist in other platforms. But this story could be told in, in, the, in the Google-verse if you wanted to. I'm going to tell the story in the Microsoft-verse. But in any case, if you develop in production, if you were developing on-premises, for example, you actually could write some piece of code that seems innocuous and helpful but winds up going into an infinite loop and eventually brings down a server. That story's well told. The story that isn't as well told is that you could build something that appears to be clever at first glance and seems to be doing what it's supposed to do, but and you're running it in the cloud, so you're not going to bring down anyone's infrastructure because they've got throttling and a bunch of other checks in place. But it turns out that you've built something incorrectly and a calculation you're making is wrong. Or you keep building it and you become a victim of your own success and it becomes impossible to make a change to something without destabilizing everything because we're really getting into sidebar land here. The real difference to me, the cognitive difference between a professional developer, someone that codes and codes well, 
and most other mortals, whether they have technical skills or not, the things that make coders or, or good developers good is that they can think of many, many things at once and the interdependencies between them. Most of us can think of about three to five things at once, and then after that, it just becomes many. And uh, when you start to think, what effect, if I change this here, what effect will it have over there? Maybe I think of three things at a time and then keep adding a new thing in and taking another thing out. And I just keep moving around kind of like a magnifying glass. Real developers can think of about 20 things at once, the really good ones. And so they actually understand that if you move something here, it'll affect something over here in a way that the rest of us don't think of. I bring that up so that I can set it aside because your typical citizen developer, your typical low-code, no-code developer doesn't do that, which means the odds yeah. of them breaking their own work is really, really easy. And do you really want to break everything the users are doing at the exact same time? No, you have to be able to develop in a sandbox and then move the solution into production once you've tested it. I don't care if it's not a formal application sanctioned by IT and built by properly commissioned developers. This is something everyone ought to care about. I've seen a couple of people in low-code, no-code land adopt a versioning and publishing style model, like they'll treat the application like a document and you run it through an approval process before everyone else gets to see it. And that usually works for the first version, but for creating updates, that gets a bit harder to do. Yeah, how does that work at scale? Yeah, uh, so the Skybook basically lets you build something in one place, click one button, turn it into a package, click another button, and then deploy it where you want it to go. And you can keep track of where it's deployed, what version is deployed there, and you can send an update to an existing deployment into position and have it do a non-destructive enhancement of what's there. So I like that. I also like the fact that they had a form designer and a data designer and an action designer and a page designer and a theme designer all within a single studio. So it's fewer tools to juggle and then uh, formal management for all of that. So it was an example of what I really wanted out of... Um, a low-code, no-code development tool. So often you'll find one company that builds a workflow designer and another company that builds a form designer. And they might even come from the same company, but they're completely separate things. And, and God forbid you need to put them all together into a standard solution. And God forbid, a lot of them also assume that the data you want to work with already exists. So it's not really a packaged solution. It's packaged glue between existing solutions. That, that can be problematic as well. So that's probably a really long way of explaining how I came to Skybo or why I like Skybo, but it also sets up a lot of the problems that low-code, no-code efforts run into and citizen development efforts run into even more. So then if you, so let's, let's take a step back on, you know, the low-code, no code versus citizen development. How do you think that those are similar or different? Are they the same thing? Like what are, what are your thoughts on that? Oh, they're definitely related, but they're also definitely not the same thing. Not at all. Citizen development, you know, Gartner coined that term. I think it's been about 10 years now, maybe. I mean, I like the term. It's clever. It's overused, but it's still pretty clever. It comes out of the notion of a citizen soldier. In other words, ancient Rome or Napoleonic France or present-day Switzerland or even large parts of the, uh, the United States, 
people whose job in no way entails taking up arms and, and contributing to community defense are still able to do that once in a blue moon or, or on occasion when it's necessary for them to do that. They have a certain baseline level of skills. They're not experts, but they know enough to, when the situation calls for it, help or, or get things done and then go back to their normal lives. Well, citizen development is kind of the same thing. And it's all about allowing somebody that owns a problem to be able to own the solution. Because whether we want it or not, this is inevitable. For one thing, lots of people understand how to write scripts or macros. Uh, we might have called them a long time ago. Or even might know a little bit of JavaScript programming. Uh, or, or know how to use If This Then That or Microsoft Flow or Zapier or something like that. People are not as helpless as they used to be. So the, the odds of them trying to scratch an itch are much, much higher than they used to be rather than waiting for IT to come around and scratch it for them. There's a desire to get that done. The second thing is IT doesn't have any more bandwidth than it used to. And, and that means a whole bunch of need throughout an organization is not being met. And before, because budgets were the way they were and talent was the, uh, scarce and so on, and tools were even scarcer or even more inaccessible, you just had to live with that backlog. Now people are breaking through the backlog either by writing something themselves or subscribing to something uh, from a managed service provider or, or, or paying somebody out of their uh, line of business budget. But all of those things are possible. And in fact, you know something, even if you subscribe to something from a managed service provider, you're still likely going to supplement that with a little bit of extra work and integration because the thing you subscribe to won't be exactly what you want or you'll need to connect it to something else. So citizen development is all about the term empowering is overused. I'd rather avoid it, but it actually kind of fits here. It, it really is about making sure that people that are not full-time developers can on occasion pick up some tools, hopefully good high quality tools, and get some things done on a temporary basis. In fact, if things are done well, IT manages that entire effort and provides libraries or catalogs of components that can be used kind of like Lego bricks to put something together. Uh, they might even provide some coaching. They might even keep an eye out for who's building what to see whether or not it should be evolved into something that is formally managed. Citizen developer, it's not so much a person, it's a, it's a type of activity, citizen development is uh, non-professional development. And when I say professional, I mean non-full-time. There are people who uh, are quite gifted, and it just isn't their job to be building stuff all the time. Uh, how about this? Salesforce administrators or, or Microsoft Dynamics CRM administrators, they spend a lot of time managing data and generating lots of reports, but inevitably they'll look at the extensibility tools available in those packages and add extra stuff. Even that could be called citizen development to a certain extent. Now, low code or no code development actually can be done by professional developers. In fact, I know a lot of people that do. The, the tools that, uh, that uh, my current company and my former company put out are actually used probably 50% or more by people that can code and do develop full time, but they can get so much more done 
in so much less time with so consistent results if they use tools with a higher payoff than dropping directly into code land every time. Low-code, no-code tools are all about literally not needing to write code for everything. And usually most citizen developers will use a low-code or no-code tool. It doesn't have to be that way. In fact, I would argue that some IT administrators that have done some really, really clever things with PowerShell to automate tasks that they were doing manually, to me, PowerShell is code. I mean, people will say scripts aren't code, but PowerShell is more than just scripting. And IT people do not write scripts or write code 24-7. So somebody writing a clever uh, maintenance script, that's citizen development. But it certainly isn't low-code, no-code tool usage. So the terms overlap. The Venn diagram is a pretty strong overlapping Venn diagram, but they are definitely distinct things. Yeah, I mean... It's a pretty interesting distinction. It's one we, we really haven't talked about a ton on the podcast yet of this idea of, of low-code and no-code options for people that are developers. Like we, we've talked about it a little bit, but what is the advantage here? Like why would a company, like if you're a CIO or, or a CTO and you're looking to you know expand, you know, a lot of times we talk about if you're looking to expand the number of developers that you have, you can use citizen developers to kind of augment your your workforce or to add, you know, innovation and and different sort of like bottom-up refinement or or whatever it is. But the other kind of piece of this is that you can augment your current developers by allowing them to work much faster. Like what what do you see as the the huge advantages like kind of like going forward? Well, again, let's divide and conquer here. Let's let's do low code, no code first. And I would, and having been a CIO in the past, I, I can certainly uh, talk to them. And communicating with a lot of CIOs today, I, again, I I have both personal experience and empathy on this. And what I will tell you is that as a CIO, I actually want developers to use low code, no code tools whenever they possibly can, and. Uh, again, whenever they possibly can, there are plenty of situations where they wouldn't be appropriate. But when we can, if I'm using a low-code, no-code tool, I will get a faster result. I will get usually a more understandable, consistent result because low-code, no-code tools usually have a certain framework or pattern to the way they build solutions. So a user that understands one solution written in a, a particular low-code, no-code tool will probably see a second solution look pretty familiar as opposed to somebody creating two completely different solutions that were hand-coded. And yes, you could enforce application standards within your company, but that just gives the developers more work to do and more quality control to have to implement and more checking to have happen. You get all of that in the box if you use standardized tools. Uh, so I get faster work. I get more consistent work. I get a lot of things that would have to be handwritten provided in the box. And here's the most important thing. I probably am lowering the bar uh, just a little bit in terms of the total number of people that either know how to use them or can be taught how to use them. And if one person leaves the company, the odds are that someone else can pick it up, figure out what it is doing much more quickly and keep going forward. To me, low-code, no-code actually doesn't just mean easier to create and easier to update. It usually means easier to understand. 
In fact, the, the yeah, mark I, of a bad no-code or bad low-code tool is that it's just still as cryptic as code. If, if that's the case, don't use that tool. Are there any metrics that you see that have been helpful at looking at like how that stuff is measured or how how usage is increased or like productivity increases or anything like that? I'm probably not the right person to ask for that. What I can tell you is that, like I said, at both Skybo and the company I worked at before Skybo, half of our develop half of the people that used our tools or use our tools could code if they want to. They're they're more effective with us. In fact, what they usually wind up doing is adding a little bit of code, little components or little bit of uh, add-ons to uh, low-code, no-code tools, which is why I think low-code is a lot more realistic than completely no-code. There are always going to be a couple of things that aren't available out of the box, and so a little bit of an extensibility model helps a lot. Let's get into some of the kind of futuristic-looking questions that that I have. Like, what does this look like for organizations in five years and 10 years? Like, as CIOs and, and IT leaders are looking to implement stuff like this, you know, what does it mean for their workforce? What does it mean for how they, how they organize and think about, you know, planning and innovation and development um, over the next decade? Well, you've seen tools and techniques and facilities uh, and, and frameworks and everything that software development as an industry changes constantly and evolves constantly, and that's not going to slow down. I, I, I'm less interested in that, mainly because everybody's motivated to create better tools and better ways to write solutions. That, that situation will continue to take care of itself. What I'm interested in is the effect on organizations and the types of decisions, and the types of culture changes that need to be made if we're actually going to make or realize any benefits from that. So citizen development has actually been around for a while. Like I said, I transitioned out of doing data analysis and marketing and policy research into actual IT and professional development by starting as a citizen developer. Yes, I became professional after that and, and got a lot more training, but citizen development's been around a long time. What is happening is critical mass because lines of business own budgets. IT still has a budget, but line of businesses or lines of businesses have more budget they're going to get what they need one way or another. And they can do it through chaos or they can do it through coordination. So the challenge to CIOs is, do they treat citizen development as shadow IT or do they treat it as um, a productive activity that they can lead and coordinate? If you're gonna do that, what you really need to do is, keep an eye on what kinds of citizen development activities are happening out of the trenches. It could just be somebody taking something out of a CRM system and dropping it into everybody's local contact list and harvesting emails. Actually, a lot of CRM systems do that today anyway, but there could be integration efforts that are going on. You need to know that those are happening. And if you see that enough of them are happening, maybe that gets promoted to a formal solution. So that's activity that should be happening, number one. Activity that should be happening, number two, is 
it could very well be that there are legitimate differences between different parts of an organization, and we shouldn't try to standardize that out. For, let's do something as mundane as um, vacation requests, leave requests. It could be that in one organization, your manager saying yes is enough. It could be in another organization that you need two managers. It could be in yet a, or, or another department. I actually knew of a, a consulting firm out there that doesn't have managers approve leave time. It's your peers that do it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, no, if they're, if they're prepared to cover for you, then you can have the time off. And, and, you know, people do favors for each other and so on. And it actually worked for them in that kind of organization, especially because everything was done in teams and there was lots of uh, cross-pollination of skills. So if you were gone, your ability to contribute was uh, absent, but somebody being able to contribute was still very much present. It worked for them. It's weird, but it worked for them. But here's the thing. In every one of those cases, certain things had to, uh, to happen. You needed to be able to make sure that that somebody had accrued the necessary time, that it was available to them to take off. You needed to be able to log it and register it when it was approved. You need to make sure that it was deducted from somebody's available balance. In other words, all those things that the Human Race Resources Department requires. So if I'm a forward-thinking IT place, I would say, look, I'm going to give you a couple of examples of how to create vacation requests, but common to all of them are these two components that I'm going to insist that everybody add to whatever solution they want. One checks the balance, and the other one debits the balance for the approved amount and also schedules when that uh, vacation time is going to be uh, claimed. So in other words, make sure the HR system knows what it needs. You can use whatever approval process you want. And I'll give you two or three examples that you can choose from if you don't want to make one of your own. But you could also take something I built as a, an example and then customize the heck out of it. Just make sure you use these two plugins that I insist that everyone use. Yeah. And I mean, is that, is that how you look at governance of this? Like how, how would you, you know, how do you view governance you know, going forward over the next few years? I see governance manifesting itself in several ways. One is coming up with business process management people call or have a term called business rules. And what that really is, is uh, subcomponents. In other words, I may decide that we want to, we'll stick with this example, I want to approve a vacation request, but we have a certain mechanical set of steps that are used in order to register that uh, a vacation request is being approved. So I will create what some people call a business rule, or you could call a, uh, a sub process or a component or a module or whatever. And I'm going to put that in a catalog and make sure that every citizen developer in my organization has access to it. And it's my job to maintain and promote the use of the catalog, especially because it'll make it easier for them to build more stuff faster. Basically, I am the curator of the Lego bricks, the custom ones, the ones that you use to create very specialized Lego structures. That's one way of doing governance. The, another way is making sure that people have the skills to, to do things that are responsible. Remember, if I'm trying to use low-code and no-code tools to lower the bar, I, I still the bar still exists. So I'd like to make sure people can do it. I know of a couple of companies, larger manufacturing concerns in Europe that have 
standardized on a couple of different low-code, no-code tools. And what they've done is they've created essentially a driver's license program. You take a one-day training session, and then you get a driver's license to be able to design forms or to be able to design workflows or design entire solutions. And that means they activate your ability to use the tool in the first place. It's a governable tool. We'll come back to that in a minute. The tool's designed to be governed so they can turn on and off one's ability to use it. And there's a specific uh, help line or, or and chat. I think they're using Microsoft Teams now, but they might be using something else. But there's a way for somebody to get help and somebody uh, monitoring that so they they're not going to help just anyone. They're going to help people that they've awarded a driver's license to. So you get the tools, you get the uh, an option for for help and feedback and, and guidance, and uh, you get the ability to start creating solutions for yourself and your peers. That is sort of a a trainer and a coach type function. And then when somebody builds a solution that's really really useful, I would say that uh, promoting it, being a cheerleader, and making sure that other citizen developers in the organization know what someone did, that's a good thing too. So yeah, I mean, I think that that's that's part of like socializing that internally. Some of the CIOs that we've talked to that have done the best job of citizen development have really used like hackathons and things like that to make an event of it and then really make a star of the people who won to show just how much innovation can come from the field. As much, yes, that is absolutely the right kind of attitude to have. I would say that for citizen developers, you might be able to get them to participate in hackathons. It just depends. Remember, these are people that don't develop all the time, so they may not have the bandwidth to do that. But you can also promote it on uh, internal social channels. So using whatever your corporate social networking environment is, do it that way or do it through email or do it in, in a lot of different ways. And, and again, I love hackathons. If you can make that work in your organization, do it. But I'm not going to assume that everyone can. But almost everyone has an internal social network. Use that. Yeah. And whether that's like an internal comms or, or whatever it is, you know, I think also sharing externally matters as well. I mean, it, it's a signal to other folks that, you know, from a talent perspective, might be looking to join the organization or, or anything like that. I mean, you know, you, you mentioned how it's been, it's older than people think, but I think it's also the very, very, very beginning of the rise of what could be a lot more folks doing this with a certain percentage of their time or at a minimum, like feeling empowered to potentially change careers and going. I mean, that was one of the things that when we talked to Sudhir from BMC that he was talking about is like one of the coolest things that they found was they transitioned people to full-time developers, which, you know, was, was a, I want to talk about, you know, the hiring costs was next. It was pretty much zero for, for that sort of thing. So there's kind of the, the hidden benefits as well. Yeah, absolutely. No two ways about it. No, the fact that it's become, that it's reached critical mass and the fact that more people are able to do it, that's absolutely a new trend and people could get caught off guard. I'll tell you what, you know, something, this is an, I like the fact that some of this stuff is just a new twist on something that we've been telling people for a long time. CIOs have been told and IT directors have been told that they need to understand the business better for a long time, and many have gotten that message, and many are actually very, very good at this. 
But this is actually another way to understand the business better. The business is made out of people with specific needs. And IT being less of a provider of technology and more of a provider of ways to use technology is, if you're looking for a trend, I'd say it's that. Let's let's switch gears here into our lightning rounds. So these are the oh, questions okay. that I've not shared with you. You don't know it's coming. It's all, all surprises, right. but don't worry. They're fast and easy questions, just like the lightning platform by Salesforce. Fast and easy. Let's I get into try it. try not to be frightened. <laughs> all right. Number one, what, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? The most fun? Flipboard. I like oh, that's a good one. We haven't heard that one yet. That's a good one. It learns more about what I like and uh, feeds me uh, news stories that interest me. But the other thing is it's smart enough to feed me stuff I didn't ask for or don't look at all the time just to see whether I might like it. Beats the heck out of an RSS style approach where I only get what I explicitly asked for. Favorite time-saving tool? Microsoft Teams. It's weird, but it's true. <laughs> it allows me okay. to uh, mix documents and with chats and uh, and other kinds of things. And you know what? It cuts down on the total number of places I have to look for something to do. We were kind of talking about this in the pre-interview. I both love and hate when new functionality gets added to Office 365 or when people create new apps. It's not that I don't like playing around with new technology all the time. I actually love it. That's the problem. If I have more and more things to check uh, for work to do, that's more and more stuff I might forget to check to see if there's work to do. And I'm somebody that likes doing this. I can only imagine what an end user would feel like when they have app after app after app after app or queue after queue after queue after queue to look at. So anything that can reduce the total of places, the total number of places I need to go to, to look for something, that's a good thing to me. And right now, that's Teams. Favorite use of AI or chatbots that you've seen recently? Hmm, I got to come back to Flipboard. It's using AI to uh, determine what kinds of news stories I might want to see. It's incredibly practical. How about a favorite podcast or recent book that you've listened to or read recently? Yours is not bad, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I always appreciate the plug for IT Visionary. Well, no, it's true. I, I, I'm a fan, but I love Freakonomics. I love those guys. I love uh, how stuff works. And actually, that's not just a, that's not a file, it's a folder. There's a whole series of different How Stuff Works podcasts, but the main one with Josh. Yeah, they do a great job. Yeah. You said podcast or something else, I forgot, sorry. Or a recent book. A recent book. Mm, let's see. Most of what I've been reading for the past six months has been short form, lots and lots and lots of short form, more articles, fewer books. And even going back the last, actually everything the Stephen, the Freakonomics guys put out, I'm forgetting the title of the most recent. I think it's Think Like a Super Freak, and I'm pretty sure I've got the title wrong. But it's their third book in the Freakonomics series. Common to all of them. It's not a new thing. It's the same. It's more examples of it and a few more insights. But in all of these cases, it's... Uh, a subtle reminder that people respond to motivations or to incentives and the law of unintended consequences and figuring out why people do what they do as opposed to what you think they should do 
that stuff motivates me all the time and has an impact on how people uh, adopt innovations and has a big impact on how people create things too, for that matter. Totally agree. All right. Final question. Mm-hmm. What is your best advice for a first time CTO or CIO? My best advice for a first time CTO or CIO is don't stay in your office. It actually is more important than anything to act like a member of everybody's team. This includes your own subordinates and it absolutely includes other CXOs and the people right below them. So stay out of your office and talk to as many people as possible. In fact, I'm going to go one level further. Talk to the people at the middle tier of the organization, just informally, no sanction, no no rewards and no sanctions. But if you really want to understand where the pain lies, it's not in the directives being given. It's in the uh, difficulty with carrying them out. Love it. Mike, thanks so much for hanging out. We really appreciate your time. We'll talk to you real soon here. Also, we can find you on Twitter, at Mike Fitz. So, So check him out on Twitter. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks so much. Talk soon. You too. Thank you again to our friends at Salesforce. IT Visionaries is brought to you by the Lightning Platform by Salesforce, a leading cloud platform that makes building AI-powered apps faster and easier. With Salesforce, now everyone can build apps for their organization. Learn more at salesforce.com slash buildapps. apps.